Nice uh, to be back with you this afternoon, and as always, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you know we've been looking at the highlights of the prophet Isaiah, some gleanings, some lessons from Isaiah, not the book as a whole, but some highlights. Last night we considered the terminology from Isaiah 40 and verse 9, Behold your God. Behold your God. What is your God like? Today I'd like to start you and uh, return to Isaiah for a minute, but this time chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. Well, you'll get another behold here. Isaiah chapter 12. Going to Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 1. Isaiah 12 and verse 1. Isaiah 12:1 And in that day shalt thou shalt say O Lord I will praise thee though thou wast angry with me thine anger is turned away and thou comfortest me behold God is my salvation I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song he has also become my salvation Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. We'll read more later, but God does bless the reading of his precious word. It's kind of easy to see, at least in the three verses I've read, the subject salvation comes before us. That behold there in verse 2, behold God is my salvation. Look at it, consider it. Behold God is my salvation. They say that's what the name Isaiah means. God is my salvation. The word salvation being the word Yeshua. God is my salvation. And as we consider this a little bit, beholding God is my salvation, Isaiah will write about salvation more than any other Old Testament prophet. His book has been called the, uh, the Gospel of the New Testament, the, the miniature Bible. The way it gets that is because there's 66 books in Isaiah, huh? and uh, 66 chapters, and there's 66 books in the Bible. And from 1 through 39 in Isaiah, you have a lot of judgments, kind of answers to the judgments on the Old Testament. But from chapter 40 through 66, the last 27 books of the book of Isaiah starts with a message of comfort ye my people, and a message of glad tidings or gospel, not to say there's not any judgment, and answers to the 27 books of the New Testament. And has all kinds of messianic prophecies in it. So we come across this term salvation. Behold God my salvation. But when we think of salvation, what do you think of? You say, well, salvation from hell. Salvation from the wrath of God. Forgiveness of sins. Everlasting life. And you do think correctly. But in the way Isaiah presented it, and in the way the Bible presented it, there are two aspects to salvation. Now, when he says, Behold, God is my salvation, there are two things in mind, two truths in mind. Something like a coin, you know, if you had a quarter in your hand. Say, What's this quarter? And this side says, It's heads. And this side says, No, no, it's tails. Who's right? Well, you're both right. <laughs> it's both head and tails completely. It has two sides in it. And Isaiah and the scriptures, when it talks about salvation, will show two sides of this salvation, in which both are true. Behold, God is my salvation. Now, before we look at Isaiah a little more, I'd like to take you to the New Testament, 
where Peter talked about salvation. And he will speak about two major things in the context. So you might want to keep something in Isaiah. We're coming back. But if you go to 1 Peter chapter 1, please. Book of 1 Peter and chapter 1. Breaking in here at verse 8. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Peter 1 and verse 8. Whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Look, look at something now at the end called the salvation <coughs> of your souls. Speaking of this salvation, Peter says this in verse 10. Of 1 Peter 1, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. He says, this salvation the prophets, and now he's referring to the prophets, including Isaiah. And they searched this subject out diligently. They wrote about salvation, but they didn't understand it all, though they prophesied of the grace that should come to you. For look what he says next in verse 11. 1 Peter 1 and verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So when they wrote of salvation, they didn't understand it all. They searched, what, what am I writing? The Spirit of God was speaking by them. It didn't come from their own human minds. They didn't always understand the full implication of what they were writing, nor did they understand the timing. When will this salvation happen? That they're right, what manner of time? When it te the Spirit of Christ that was in them, and it testified beforehand, that's prophecy, and notice two major things. The Spirit of Christ in these prophets testified concerning. Look at the end of verse 11 of 1 Peter 1. The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Messiah, the sufferings that he would be rejected of men and despised, he would suffer, he would be wounded for our transgressions. They show a bleeding, a weak Messiah being judged for our sins, the sufferings of Christ. That was only one half of their message. They also spoke about the glory that should follow. That is not a permanent thing. He's going to be glorified. He's going to put down the kingdoms of the world. He'll be a mighty warrior. And he'll rule for God in glorious righteousness and peace and social justice on this earth. And be every person will come to see him and learn from him the glory that should follow. And so as he brings these two aspects out that we should expect to find in the Old Testament prophets, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, it will bring us to this dual aspect of salvation. For what we're going to see is salvation, there is a personal side to it, or a spiritual side, where I need to be saved from my sin. There also, besides a personal side, is a political side, a governmental side, where God will deliver his people from the oppression of the world, the evil of the world, the tyranny of the world that restricts you from serving God and sometimes throws Christians in jails for it as they did Israel, and they limit you in your service for God, and sometime God will crush that power and liberate his people so they can completely free to serve him. We term that political salvation or governmental salvation, and both are a God. Behold God my salvation. God is my salvation, Isaiah 12, 2. He will be speaking about both aspects as we'll see. 
So the Spirit of Christ uh, in them brought a dual truth, the sufferings of Christ, and we'll see where those fit in, and the glory that should follow. And then look at verse 12 of 1 Peter 1, verse 12. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister to things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things did the angels desire to look into. That, that, that when they were writing these things, they were writing it for us, the believers, the church age. <laughs> they weren't writing it for themselves. It wasn't for them to guide them through. It was for us, it says. And even angels didn't have it all figured out, never mind the prophets. So he says in verse 13 of 1 Peter 1, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a whole book named after that, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, huh? and which is hope to the end, the salvation of our souls. And so he brings the subject of salvation, but it's built around two major events, the sufferings of Messiah and the glory that should follow. Now, with that in mind, we're going to go back to the book of Isaiah. First, I want to document from the book itself that at times when it speaks of salvation, it'll be speaking of political salvation. At other times, it'll be speaking of personal or spiritual salvation. Two truths. That God is my salvation. He is my hope for my sins forgiven, salvation from judgment. He's also the hope of this world to deliver us from evil and oppression and liberate the people of God, the kingdom of God. And it's both of him. Having said that, Let's go back to Isaiah, and this time 37. Isaiah chapter 37. If you were at camp when we were on prophecy, maybe two or three were, I touched on some of these things also at camp in our subject. But, but going here to uh, Isaiah 37, the subject will involve Hezekiah. He was the king of the line of David of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the city of God, where the temple was, God's name was. And there were enemies all around that uh, wanted to obliterate that city to say, there's no true God in Israel, our God is greater. And such was the case when you come to chapter 37, under the reign of Hezekiah, the Assyrian Empire was on the move, led by a king called Sennacherib. And he was moving in from country to country and conquering them and becoming a world empire. He had moved into Israel, into Judah, and had defeated the cities of Judah. And his last stop was Jerusalem, the city of God. You know, as 1 Kings 11.36 says, Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen me to put my name there. And so he's at the doorstep of Jerusalem where Hezekiah's palace is, and he sends his messenger to intimidate him that we're going to obliterate you, so why don't you just surrender? Uh... In that, uh, tidings came, and the Rabshika, the, the foreign minister, we might say, had to leave to take care of another war, just as he was about ready to supposedly obliterate Jerusalem. So he, he sent an intimidating letter to Hezekiah, said, we haven't forgotten you, we'll be back. Now we're going to break in on that in chapter 37 and verse 8. Chapter 37 and verse 8. So Rabshika, some of your translations, that will look like a personal name. Others will have the Rabshikeh, which is a title of an office like foreign minister. So Rabshikeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. 
And he heard saying concerning Takara, king of Ethiopia, He has come forth to make war with thee. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, He had to leave for a while. He couldn't carry out his message because Hezekiah had already prayed. And so he says, But I'll be back. You're not off the hook. Verse 10. Thus shall ye speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God in whom thou trustest deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly. And shalt thou be delivered? Have you heard of our track record? We're undefeated. <laughs> We've beat everybody. And you think you're going to escape? Verse 12, the intimidation continues. Have the gods of the nations delivered them, which my fathers have destroyed? As Gozan and Haran and Respa and the children of Eden, with which were in Teleosar? He says, these gods, you think you trust in gods? Uh, the, the religious gods are falling also. Verse 13, where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arphad, the king of the city of Seraphim, Hena, and Iva? You know, do they exist today? He said, well, verse 14, Hezekiah gets this letter promising he's going to stay undefeated and wipe Jerusalem, the city of God, out. Verse 14, and Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up unto the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, saying, He didn't marshal up a bigger army. He didn't meet for peace negotiations of compromise with the Rabshikah. He went to God, and he laid that problem out to God. He let God read the letter, so to speak. And, and he prays this to the Lord as he just puts it before the living God. Verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwelleth between the cherubim, Thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Everything he said is really blaspheming you and your ability. Well, verse 18. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations. And their countries. He didn't lie. They're undefeated. They've beat everybody. Verse 19. And has cast out their gods into the fire. Cast out their gods into the fire. For they were no gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. It is true they've conquered the gods. But they weren't really gods. They were just a hunk of stone, a hunk of wood. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't living. And so they've destroyed everything. It's, now verse 20. Now therefore, O our Lord God, save us from the hand of, uh, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone art the Lord, even thou only. Save us. From what? From hell? No, no, no. Save us from his hand, that we won't be militarily defeated, we can keep on worshiping God at the temple, etc. This is governmental or political salvation. Save from the tyranny of the enemy. The, the, the uh, oppression of the God-hater, so that God's people can have freedom to worship God. Huh? And so it's political salvation he's praying for. God heard that prayer, and he sent Isaiah back with an answer. And part of that answer here, if he, God says through Isaiah back to Hezekiah, if you'll jump down to verse 35, Isaiah 37 and verse 35, 37-35. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake, 
and for my servant David's sake. Not save your soul, but save this city. I'll do it. And God goes on to say, look how he did it in verse 36 of chapter 37. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote the camp of the Assyrians, a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. One angel without an Israeli shot being fired, without a soldier being mar marshaled, killed 185,000 Assyrian troops. And they had to go back in disgrace and there was no attack. God politically, governmentally saved his people that day. So when Isaiah uses this term, it's not only salvation from sin, it's salvation from worldly political oppression so you can be free to serve God. Say, I'll save this city. And did you notice something here? It was a gospel without works. Israel didn't do nothing. He just looked to God. One angel just took care of 185,000 troops, and they were free from that attack, a, a, a political salvation without works. Now, having said that, to show there's a political side to the word salvation, when you get to the life of Hezekiah in chapter 38, you're going to see a personal side, a spiritual side to salvation. Let's see what we mean. This other side of salvation. L look at verse 1. Isaiah 38 and verse 1. 38, 1. In those days, Hezekiah was sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. It's not the city's going to be attacked. You're going to die, Hezekiah. Get, get your affairs in order. So he's facing personal death. Verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord. Did the same thing. He took it to God first. Look at verse 3. And said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And God heard that prayer. And God sent the prophet back again with an answer to that prayer. Isaiah comes back and will tell him about that he, he's going to have 15 years. He's not going to die immediately now. And in understanding that, Hezekiah then talks to God again, or maybe through Isaiah. But you look at verse 15, chapter 38 and verse 15. Hezekiah says, What shall I say? He has spoken unto me, and himself hath done it. I shall go softly all my years in the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things in the life of my spirit, so will thou recover me and make me to live. He heard his life was going to be extended. You're going to recover me. Well, look here at verse 18, or verse 17. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. You've taken my sins and put them out of sight. You've saved me from corruption, Lord. Not the city, but me. Look at verse 18. For the grave cannot praise thee. Death cannot celebrate thee. That thou go down into the pit cannot hope in thee. Thy truth. Verse 19. The living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. Uh, the, the father to the children shall make known thy truth. Now watch verse 20. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Not save the city now, save me. That's personal salvation. 
I don't have to face death at this point. My sins are cast behind thy back. Never mind about the judgment we think this wicked world uh, deserves. What about the judgment our sins deserve? You know, Romans 1.32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. How about our sins and our judgment? And that not only do we need saved governmentally, but we need saved personally. Huh. And that's a message of the New Testament too, isn't it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Chapter 37, I'll save this city, political salvation. Chapter 38, thou hast saved me, <laughs> personal salvation. So when we speak of salvation, there's two aspects to it. There's the personal side where I need saved. And there's also the nation's needs judged so we can be free and saved to serve God. And in both cases, it's without works. In both cases, behold, God is my salvation. Now, having shown that, that that exists in Isaiah, and we see it in the life of Hezekiah, a political salvation and a personal salvation, I'd like to take you to other scriptures in Isaiah that some will have to do with the sufferings of Christ. Predictions, prophecies, that Messiah would be punished and suffer. And yet that same person, other scriptures will have to do with the glory that should follow. One set of scriptures will present the Savior, the Messiah, as a mighty warrior, coming back in strength and power, crushing the world oppressors, crushing the armies, and revealing God's saints in power, and they're free to serve God. The mighty warrior that conquers sin and this world. So let, let's see that a little bit. And then we'll see another portrait of the suffering Messiah, personal salvation, as well as political salvation. So we, there's many places. It's all throughout this book of Isaiah. We could take you to many places. I'm just going to take you to two or three. Go to Isaiah 61, please. See an example here. Interesting chapter here as you go to the prophecy of Isaiah 61. And it will say in verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings or the gospel unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, lo, to comfort, lo, comfort all that mourn, etc., Spirit of the Lord is going to be upon someone. He's going to preach the gospel to the poor. He's going to proclaim that God is accepting people. The acceptable year of the Lord. There's also a message of vengeance, of judgment. When the Messiah came to earth, our Lord Jesus Christ, Luke chapter 4 shows that he went into the Jewish synagogue and he was, they asked him to speak. And he stood up, first of all, to read the scriptures that day in the Jewish synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. And he chose to read from where we just read, the prophet Isaiah 61. But he did something. He didn't read as much as I just did. He read verses 1 and 2. Spirit of the Lord's upon me. Preach the gospel to the poor. Heal the brokenhearted. Proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And look at verse 2, and I'll show you what he did. As he read verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, he stopped shut the book and handed it back to the minister of the servant. He was done reading. And he went on to say in Luke 4, 21, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. As he began to preach the gospel to the rejected and the poor, a, a gospel of good tidings, personal salvation to them, he closed it. 
You know what he never read? The day of vengeance. The day of vengeance. He did not come to judge in his first coming. He did not come to, to take the sword and to crush the nations in political salvation. He came to preach that men and women could be saved. The Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them, Luke 9:56. And he never read the day of vengeance because it hadn't come yet. So the only part he could truly say was fully fulfilled in that day was the acceptable year of the Lord. God's accepting sinners who repent and trust Christ. Huh? And so he shut the book. Understanding there's two events. There's the event of the sufferings of Christ as he would go to the cross and coming back in glory to crush the world and set up the kingdom of God. But the day of vengeance isn't here. So he wouldn't fulfill it that day. He would shut the book strategically there. He understood the two aspects of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Then if you go to chapter 63, please. And look at the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ in Isaiah, as he presents the, the mighty warrior, full of power, delivering his people from the political oppressors so they can be free to serve God. You look at chapter 63 here and look at verse 1. Verse 1. Chapter 63 of Isaiah and verse 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I speak in righteousness mighty to save. Glorious in apparel, I mean, uh, in this kingly apparel, he comes with these garments from Basra, and he's mighty to save. Well, save what? Well, it's political. Look at verse 2. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth into wine fat? Like likening going through grapes where grapes are crushed, he's stained with human blood from judgment of sinners. His garments are stained with human blood like into wine out of a wine press. Look at verse 3. I have trodden the wine press alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I, have, I, will, and I will stain all my raiment. I've done it alone. This too is something Christ did alone. He'll do alone. It's crushed the enemy someday. His garments will be stained. He's a mighty warrior. Look at verse 4. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. The vengeance, the righteous judgment of God upon the unrepentant. Look at verse 5. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld it. Brought salvation unto me. What kind of salvation? Salvation from the enemy that has, uh, that has rebelled against God, that has worked against him and his people. And Christ crushes him like a winepress, and he's stained with their blood and victory. He's the mighty warrior. It's political salvation, and he did it all by himself. It's without works. Do you notice verse 5? There was none to help, and I wondered. Mine own arm hath brought me salvation. So the Jewish people could rightly... Look at their scriptures and the prophets and say, there's coming a day, we're going to be delivered. We're going to be delivered to serve God. Messiah will come. And what our leaders can't do with Rome or whatever government, he will judge them and judge the sinner and free the people of God to serve God. They rightly understood that. But what some of them missed was the sufferings of Messiah. Not only the glory that should follow, but first had to, in weakness, be rejected and spit upon and look like he could do nothing as he went to the cross to bear your sins and mine. 
And when you get to Isaiah 64, the very next chapter, we'll talk about salvation, but not about the enemy now. <laughs> it goes more to the personal aspect. So going to the next chapter, uh, chapter 64, and look at verse 5. Isaiah 64 and verse 5. It says, Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. Those that remember thee in thy ways, behold, thou art wroth. For we have sinned, and those is continuance, and we shall be saved. Now, not the nations have sinned, we have sinned. It's a wonderful thing when you see, it's not, not the world's fault, not the government's fault, not the Republicans or Democratic. I'm a sinner. I've, we have sinned. I have sinned. They go on to realize with all their religion and good works and ethics that it's nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. Look, look at the next verse, verse 6. 64 6 but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we do all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away all these little petty religious rules and ritual and giving to the poor in, in your sight because of our sin it's nothing but filthy rags being presented to you but in thy righteousness we shall be saved and now it's not a political salvation it's a personal salvation and Isaiah will show the basis for that. You know it well. But just for a minute, go to Isaiah 53. Uh, another portrait here. And it's not a mighty warrior, though that will happen, the glory that shall follow. It's a suffering Messiah in weakness. And judgment is falling, but not on the nations. And squeezing their blood out of, the, out of them is falling on the Lord Jesus himself, the Son of God as he takes your sin and my sin. For example, look at verse 5 of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. The punishment for our peace was not upon the military leaders who made mistakes and presidents and kings. It was upon him. God's servant he's talking about Aaron 52 and 53. The one who grew up before God as a tender plant, but rejected by men. It's messianic here about the Christ. He was wounded. And then look at verse 6. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not on the nations, on him. That on the cross... It pleased God to bruise him, chapter 10, verse 10 of chapter 53. He made his soul an offering for sin. God gave his perfect son because he could be that perfect sacrifice to bear your sins and my sins. And all our sin was, not, was, was laid up not on me, on him. This isn't punishing the nations. This is punishing the son of God. Oh, what love. He died for me so that I could be saved, so that I could have a sins taken away righteously, that he took my punishment, and God can preach unto me the forgiveness of sins. Acts 13, 38. You know, when we lived in Pittsburgh many years ago, it was Christmas time, we had a, uh, some type of a placard on our front door that had all the names of Christ, in very nice colors, you know. And a Jewish girl stopped by, knocked on her door, and she said, I saw your sign. She says, you know, I, I've just trusted Jesus as my Messiah and Christ. I, I've just done that. And she said, I think I'm going to be thrown out of my home, my Jewish home. She said, my mom and dad don't like it. Well, we talked with her. Uh, she came back a couple days later, knocked on that door, all excited. 
She said, Mr. and Mrs. Amos, you're not going to believe what I saw. I know, I know you're not going to believe it, but I saw it. I said, what would you see? She said, I was reading Isaiah 53, and Christ had to suffer. Did you know it's in my Old Testament? I, yeah, I did read it once or twice. I said, but isn't it wonderful? Uh, it's the first time she ever saw it, that Christ had to suffer for her sins, and it was in her Bible. It's legitimate. It's not a Christian invention. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Personal salvation first before political salvation. The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. But you know what happened? Because of these double prophecies concerning the same person, Israel as a whole rejected the Lord Jesus and his weakness and his sufferings. They said, he didn't deliver us. Look, we're still under Rome. He cannot be the Messiah. They only saw the glorious warrior, not the suffering Messiah for their sins. They thought with their religion, they probably didn't need a savior. It's understandable. In fact, to a degree, it's understandable. You go to Luke chapter 1. Let me show you something here. Leave Isaiah for a minute and go to Luke chapter 1. And John the Baptist, the forerunner, the... Uh, We'd say public relations man to introduce Christ to the nation. His miracle birth was announced to his father, Zacharias. And the Spirit of God came upon that high priest, Zacharias, and began to prophesy about what was in front of them, about ready to happen to Israel through John the Baptist and Jesus Christ uh, being carried by Mary. And uh, you get to verse 13, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 1 and verse 67. Luke chapter 1 and verse 67. Yeah, Luke chapter 1 and verse 67. Luke 1 and verse 67, please. Notice the prophecy through the Holy Spirit here. Verse 67. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation... For us in the house of his servant David. Uh, speaking of the Lord, a horn of salvation. Well, you say, I guess it's going to be learned about how to be saved from hell. No. Verse 20. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. That, now watch verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. A political, we're going to be saved from our enemies. The Messiah is here. And the Old Testament promises a glorious warrior that will solve the political problems and free the people of God. We're going to be saved from our enemies. It goes on to say in verse 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Verse 73, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Now watch verse 74. Watch verse 74. That he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So it was a legitimate aspect to think of political salvation that will be free from our oppressors. We can serve God. Nobody can hinder us and enjoy him to the fullest with our family. But not only was the political side presented that day by the Holy Spirit, look further in verse 77. Verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. And now it's my sins being taken away. See, brothers and sisters, there's these two sides of salvation, a political side and a personal side of our sins. 
One happened because of the sufferings of Christ. The other happens because of the coming of Christ in glory, the glory that should follow. You know, Israel as a whole made the mistake. They only saw one half. They couldn't understand how it could be talking about the same person. Some thought there would be two messiahs. Some just said, well, it's the glorious messiah. We don't understand the other. When I was over in Israel, my wife and I, years ago, I got to talking to a Jewish shop owner, and he almost spit in my face. I thought he was going to hit me and spit in my face. I was trying to tell him about Jesus being Messiah. He said, look around, look around. Look, look at the Arabs and look on the Temple Mount. Can't you see the Dome of the Rock? Don't you know the prophets that Messiah will deliver us from that? Jesus never did. We have no peace. Has to be bogus. He only saw the glory that should follow. He did not see in the same scriptures the suffering Messiah for our sins. That we're the sinner first. We must be saved. He was blind to that. And there's many today that are only looking as a they look for a political deliverer, but not for a personal savior. But those of us that are saved, let's not make the opposite mistake. Where we understand a personal Savior. We understand we need saved from the judgment of God. Saved from wrath, Romans 5, 9, by the blood of Christ. We need our sins forgiven to be right with God. We need personally to be saved, and we can be because Christ died for our sins. And we understand that. But sometimes when it comes to political salvation... We start to look, we've got to change the world and look to the Democrats or the Republicans or this leader or that leader. He'll solve it. And we throw ourselves into world politics. Not that it's never wrong to appeal for righteousness. But we throw ourselves into agendas to change this world into some Christian utopia. I want to tell you, behold, God is my salvation. Political salvation is as much without works as personal salvation. You understand personal salvation is without works. You know, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved, through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We understand we're not saved by our good deeds, but by the blood of Christ, through faith in him. Did you know political salvation, as it's presented in Scripture, in its final form, is also without human works? It'll be accomplished not in the cross of Christ, but in the coming of Christ in glory, the glory that should follow. Let me show you an example of political salvation without works. We've already seen one in that Assyrian defeat by one angel. But go with me again, this time to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. Now the children of Israel have just been released by Pharaoh because of the judgments of God uh, from Egypt. They're not going to be held as slaves anymore. Because God's judgment was falling on the firstborn. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Exodus 12, 13. So to believing Israelis put this blood of the spotless lamb on their front door. God saw the blood of the lamb and he passed over them. There was no judgment in that house. But in the unbeliever's home that had no blood, judgment fell on the firstborn in the form of death. When Pharaoh saw the death, including his own son, what a curse you people are to me, he released the children of Israel. They didn't die that night. They were saved from the judgment of God. But as they got released... And got to the edge of the Red Sea. They had no charter boat waiting on them. The Red Sea was a blockade to them. And Pharaoh changed his mind. He said, what have I done? I've just let them go from serving us. I lost my whole economic force here at cheap labor. And he marshaled up his chariots, the number one army of that day, and changed his mind and pursued Israel not to kill him, to bring him back into slavery. And so the number one army, Egypt, was right behind him. And Israel was unarmed. 
In front of them is the Red Sea, and they're entrapped now. And some of them thought this is the end. Look, look at chapter 14 and verse 12, what they say to Moses. Exodus 14 and verse 12. Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And, and, you know, why go through all this? We'd rather be a slave in Egypt than a dead carcass in the wilderness as a free man. It can't be done, even though God promised it could be done. So look what Moses says in verse 13. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you this day or today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. You'll stand still. Don't do anything. Don't fire a shot. Don't marshal up an army. You're going to see the salvation of the Lord. You say, oh, they're already saved from judgment. Yes, they were. It's not personal salvation here. Political salvation. The tyrant is going to be destroyed, and you'll never see him again. You'll be free to serve God. Look what he says in verse 14. 14, 14. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. That's a salvation without works, and it's political. You don't do anything. God will do it for you, because they couldn't. God opened up the Red Sea with a wind. They got to walk through on dry land through the middle of a raging sea. Egypt got a bright idea. They could just follow them through. When Egypt got in the middle, the waves came back by the breath of God, and the number one army of that day drowned in a watery grave without a shot ever being fired. And so look at the end of the chapter, chapter 14 and verse 30. Chapter 14 and verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day. Well, he said, that's wonderful. He saved them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. Not save them from their sins. Out of the political oppressor, out of the hand of the Egyptians. I tell you, both gospels are without works. How is it possible that the suffering Messiah who died in weakness can be the glorious conqueror, the glorious coming victor to crush evil and establish the righteous rule of God with his people. How can it be the same person? There's one event that has linked it together. Some thought, well, it can't be Christ. It can be the Lord Jesus, and here's why. Let's go back to where we started very early here, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's go back and closing this session to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, we already read in verse 11, they prophesied the sufferings of Christ, or Messiah, and the glory that should follow. How can both happen to the same person if, you, if you're dead? Well, he tells you how. He's speaking of redemption. If you look at verse 19, 1 Peter 1 and verse 19. 1 Peter 1 and verse 19. He's speaking of redemption. He says, with the precious blood of Christ, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Takes you to a lamb suffering, a weak animal, being crushed for our sins. But verse 20, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now watch verse 21. Who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Resurrection. 
God raised him from the dead. He did not leave the corpse of the Lord Jesus there to see corruption. He raised him from the dead and gave him glory. He's on the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, Hebrews 1.3. And he's coming back. The one who died lives again. Christ died and rose again. That's our gospel. And he's coming again, and that's what the whole revelation of Jesus Christ is about. It sees heaven open, and the Lord Jesus not coming to hang on a cross, coming with a sword out of his mouth to smite the nations. And the birds of the air will have to clean up the mess. Evil will be put down. And him and his saints shall reign in the first stage for a thousand years. Freedom from evil. Freedom from disease. Freedom from sin. Freedom from Satan. He'll be bound. All these utopia things are part of God's salvation, the kingdom of God. But your faith and hope needs to be in Christ, not in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Well, we need to pray for our leaders. You have a hope in God. Your salvation is bigger than being saved from hell. It's being saved in the kingdom of God from a corrupt world. Behold, God is my salvation. So may your hope today in a world that looks like it's falling apart, and it is. How do you fix it? Well, you can't, but he will. He not only died for your sins, he's resurrected. He lives in glory, and I will come again, and he'll be glorified, and the whole thing will come to pass. God will be your salvation if you're saved in every sense of the word. Well, may the Lord give you good understanding. Okay. We're going to continue with some lessons in Isaiah in our next session before supper. Then we have two tomorrow. But now it's time to call, I think, Joshua back up, and there's a special treat I hear for you in this small break, and we'll be back up in a few minutes. Let's just ask God's blessing. Our Father, again, we just thank Thee for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank Thee that God is my salvation. We trust everyone here can truly say that. And they started with themselves, not with the faults of others, but I have sinned. And seeing that there's a Savior who died for their sins, and if they'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they, should, they will be saved, as I promise. And yet there's a bigger plan ahead. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. The same one who died is resurrected, and will come again in glory, and with his power alone, solve the problem of sin on earth, and establish righteousness and equity and justice to all. We long for that day that he'll be glorified. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. As we commit the word to work in hearts now, in and for the Lord Jesus Christ, Father. Amen.